Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The FT Welcome to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent, Jennifer Thompson, our Retail Banking Correspondent, and Tom Braithwaite, our US Banking Editor. In today's show, we'll examine the rescue plan announced on Monday morning for Britain's Cooperative Bank, which needs to plug a hole of $1.5 billion in its balance sheet. We'll look ahead to Chancellor George Osborne's annual Mansion House speech on Wednesday, which is likely to include hints at the British government's plans for reprivatising the Lloyds Banking Group and possibly RBS. And finally, Tom Honig, the vice chairman of the FDIC in the US, says Deutsche Bank's capital levels are horrible. Is he right? First, though, to that story about the co-op. And, Jennifer, you've had a fun-packed weekend trying to get ahead of this story. On Monday, they've unveiled a uh, pretty dramatic capital restructuring plan to plug this £1.5 billion hole. Run us through the details such as they are. Uh, obviously, there's, there's not full uh, information yet, but this is a fairly chunky restructuring. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing today are the theoretical details of the plan um, that's going to come to fruition in the next few months. Basically, bondholders, um, which account for about £1.3 of subordinated debt in the bank, are going to be offered a choice. They'll either be getting shares in the bank itself or they'll be offered an exchange into a new kind of mechanism. There's a few details talking about a fixed income product but we're assuming that it'll be into a new kind of instrument. And for customers, I guess some customers will be bondholders as well because they'll have bought some of these instruments through their branches. But are customers generally affected? Customers, no. I mean, if you're sort of a purely sort of deposit uh, taker, ordinary save with a bank, you should be unaffected. Things like mortgage rates will also be unaffected for now. The big question people are asking for retail investors is what this means for them in terms of losses. It'll take a few months to work through, but there are two basic choices ordinary investors will have to make. The first is, of course, whether or not to sort of hang on to what they've already got and whether or not they want to, you know, sell any holdings now and, and realise a loss. Um, you know, which, you know, would have taken place anyway after sort of the torrid few weeks the group has had. And if they do want to hang on, then what they want to swap their uh, investment into what kind of security. It's not quite clear yet what the coupon will be. We're not being offered many details in terms of the numbers. Um, what we do know is that if they do decide to hang on, then the bank will have to prepare things like prospectus for the new shares, decide how this is all going to work. And that'll happen um, in around August, September. The co-op said today that they would expect the new bank shares to be ready to list in October. So we're talking about three or four months from now. Now, in terms of those individual investors, not many people, I don't think, affect as maybe a few thousand, six or seven thousand people. Of course, for more of the money in total, I think it's about 1.3 billion of, of debt that's outstanding, will be in the hands of institutional investors. And actually, a lot of hedge funds have piled into this situation in, in the past few months. Brooke, I don't know if that's something that you've really looked at, but to what extent do you think that this is a play, if you like, an investment play that will continue over the next few months? As Jenny said, we won't know the full details until October. 
Well, obviously, we don't know the pricing. And so it seems to me there is definitely a play to be made, You know, taking a gamble that if you're a hedge fund, that you can buy the debt at a price that will then convert to equity or to some other instrument at a much better value while you take advantage of the uncertainty. It will be interesting to see. There are also institutional investors who probably, because of their mandates, can't afford to sit around and wait to find out what kind of instrument they're going to be offered. So they may have it, be having to sell, which could drive the price down and could be a real opportunity for somebody who's willing to take a risk or has very flexible mandates. And in the broader context of the regulatory authorities' new approach to banks that get into trouble, I mean, the, the co-ops problems aren't absolutely enormous. They're not Cypriot style, but there's a 1.5 billion capital hole and it's being the, the money or a large portion of the money is being found from bondholders. That really is a new approach from regulators, isn't it? Absolutely. This is what they have said they were going to do and they're actually doing it, which is sometimes surprising for the regulatory community. The PRA, which is our new prudential regulation authority, has said that from now on, they're not going to put taxpayers on the hook before bondholders. In the big bank rescues of 2008, bondholders were not hurt, partially because they were afraid of destabilizing the broader system and partially because they just didn't know how to do it. In the first real effort to stabilize a failing bank, which is the co-op, since they made all these great big pronouncements, they are actually saying, okay, bondholders, you take the hit. And there is, for now at least, no sign of taxpayer money. So they are putting their money where their mouth is. I suppose it's part of the broader setup or the, the new approach uh, in the regulatory world uh, in other countries. The Dutch example of SNS Real comes to mind, also the Cypriot situation, which is obviously quite different because of the deposit holders. And in the US, I guess, there's a kind of thing that happens all the time, isn't it, Tom, in terms of the, the way banks are wound up? Maybe slightly less complicated and large banks, but um, you yeah, I mean, the, F- winds up. the FDIC closes down banks every Friday without much trouble, but... <laughs> Um, there is still the issue for the largest banks as to how you recapitalise them when they're about to collapse. And it is still a hot issue in Washington right now. How much debt will banks be forced to hold as so-called bail-in capital, which will be converted to equity in a crisis? Well, for once, maybe we're uh, showing the way in the UK. I don't know. Um, We'll come back to you uh, in a moment on that question of Deutsche, Tom. But in the meantime, we should move on to our, our second topic, which is another UK one. Later this week, we're going to be hearing from Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, in his annual Mansion House speech. And, Jenny, this is going to be a bank-focused topic this year. We expect that one of the dominant themes is going to be the reprivatisation of Lloyds Bank. Yes, this is going to be what everyone's uh, looking for. I mean, the Chancellor is not expected to set out a specific timetable for reprivatisation or go into a lot of details. What he is expected to do is to say something like, you know, Lloyd's is in a better state of health than RBS. It's closer to reprivatisation. I mean, to some extent, this is something everybody already knows. You know, the share price um, is obviously a pretty good indicator of that. But it just brings us a little bit closer to the first tranche of shares being sold in the next year or so. Brooke, what will you be looking out for in uh, in Mansion House this year? You're a, you're a regular attendee. <laughs> I think it'll be really interesting to see whether they're done with re-regulating the banks. I mean, they probably aren't because we are expecting this week the Commission on Banking Standards to make some recommendations and whether George Osborne will attempt to preempt or steal the limelight on that issue will be interesting to see. They clearly trailed the RBS Lloyd stuff all over the place, but they haven't said word one about what they're going to do to make to improve culture and banking, make banking more competitive, all the stuff they have promised since they got elected and we've seen relatively little on. Well, that's true. I think uh, if Mr. Osborne's plans come to fruition, then he will 
probably have the commission report in front of him as he presents his speech. I think the idea is to have it out beforehand and therefore for it to be all marvellously coordinated, his message and, uh, and theirs. But uh, we will have a lot to talk about reflecting on that next week in, in next week's podcast. We should turn to our final topic. Tom, um, you're here visiting in, in London this week, but you were covering a, a very interesting story over the weekend. Tom Honig, the vice chairman of the FDIC in the US, says that Deutsche Bank's capital levels are, quote, horrible. This is something that he likes to say quite a lot, doesn't he? He's often quite critical of banks' capital levels. So to that extent, is it a surprise and, and does it mean anything? I think pretty unusual to get any regulator taking direct aim at a foreign institution like that. And uh, yeah, he said Deutsch was horribly undercapitalized. Regardless of the specific institution, I think it underlines that there are still some quite tetchy conversations going on across the Atlantic. I saw a European bank CEO in New York last week who was complaining that US banks were not on Basel III standards yet. Uh, equally, there are plenty of US banks who think the Europeans are, in Mr. Honig's words, horribly undercapitalized. So I think we've still not got to the end of this uh, quite intense debate as to you know which side of the Atlantic is is better off. On the specifics of Deutsche Bank, obviously part of this issue has been a long-running one around the broader issue of capital levels. There's also been the rouse over the way regulators have looked at various aspects of their business. In some ways, I suppose Deutsche will feel a little hard done by right now because they've just announced only a few weeks ago a big capital raising. But you're sensing a, a kind of more deep-seated tension continuing. Well, I think part of it's on the, on the metric. So Deutsche now looks quite strong on the Basel III risk-weighted measure. Yeah. It looks far less strong on most measures of leverage, which is just the pure assets divided by equity. Mm. Um, and on that measure, some of the US banks look a lot stronger. But again, there are still arguments over, as I'm sure Brooke can attest to, the um, leverage ratio and whether, you know, which leverage ratio we should be looking at. So This is obviously a very timely topic of debate because leverage is one of the key issues that the Basel Committee is going to continue to look at over the next few months uh, and other regulators around the world. In fact, we're hoping that the Basel Committee will issue a pronouncement within the next couple of weeks on how to calculate the leverage ratio, because currently it's very difficult to compare European and US banks because they use different accounting standards for their off-balance sheet investments and for their over-the-counter derivatives, which are an enormous part of their balance sheets. There has been an enormous fight raging about how to find some middle ground between the two ways of calculating. And so once we have an actual metric against which all banks will have to be measured, it'll be a lot easier to start comparing banks fairly because I think both sides with justification feels the other side is cheating on particular measures. We just don't know who's cheating to what level. Who knows, we might even get a breakout of uh, transatlantic peace on the regulatory framework. That's it for this week. My thanks to Brooke, Jennifer and Tom for their contributions. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced this week by Martin Staber. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.